0: You're listening to SBS News.
1: I now started to ask the question, why did it happen and so violently? And so, like, sort of psychopathic behaviours. And I found that griefology doesn't shame, blame, um, vilify, demonise.
2: You know, you look at our life expectancy and it's something that we have to about. I've had my funeral plan written out since I was a young teenager, and I thought that was normal.
0: Everyone, at some point or another, will lose someone or something they love. And yet grief is still seen as a taboo, particularly in dominant Western cultures. So how do different cultures hold space for grief and are some better equipped than others? And how can we think about grief beyond the concept of death, looking at other profoundly life-changing forms of loss? I'm Katrina Stirrett, and this is the third instalment of Living Loss. In this episode, we explore the world's oldest continuous culture, Indigenous Australians, and the varying complex ways First Nations Australians navigate grief. Rosemary Wanganine, who you might remember from our first episode, is a proud Ghana and Waringu Aboriginal woman and Stolen Generations member. Exploring this traumatic experience led her to discover the deeply unresolved grief that permeates through much of Australia's post-European settlement history and broader European histories. You might recall this was prompted by a profound realisation of her own trauma and grief, which she describes as phase one, when she found herself at a women's shelter at age 28. I had to do all of that research to come out the other end and having that
1: really deep understanding of grief forgiveness, not gr- not religious forgiveness. Grief forgiveness um, through griefology enables a person to go through a deep grieving process to come out at the other end to forgive. Um, whereas religious forgiveness, um, because they became a part of our story as Aboriginal people, you know, they talk about, um, forgiveness to forgive and forget and just move on. That doesn't sustain. That doesn't do any healing whatsoever. Uh, now I, now I know the power in the grieving process to be able to forgive, to sustain me in, in thriving.
0: In developing her seven phases of grief framework, Rosemary delved right back into the history of Australia's colonisation. Following phase two, which she says involved recognising and exploring her unhealed childhood losses and unresolved grief, Rosemary decided to look into Australia's colonial history. She asked herself the question, who had the right to take me away from my family?
1: I now started to ask the question, why did it happen and so violently? And so like sort of psychopathic behaviours. And I found that griefology doesn't shame, blame, um, vilify, demonise. And so here I'm just wanting to understand, you know, why was I removed from my family? Looking at 1788, begs the question, if 1788 arrived so violently, why did that happen? which then meant that the English uh, and and the convicts who came here, they must have a story. Something must have happened to them, but what's their story?
0: This led Rosemary back as far as the ancient Greek philosopher Plato. She concluded that unresolved grief was responsible for the violent colonialism that shaped the experience of Aboriginal Australians as well as other Indigenous peoples around the world. And so
1: I go all the way back to finding a guy called Plato and Plato coined the idea in 388 BC that grief is not only illogical, but it's a weakness. And I thought, whoa, what? That's, that's something is in that. So then I started to read between the lines and realize that, or my thesis is, when humans shut down their healthy grieving processes, particularly healthy grief anger, they shut it down out of fear of being labeled weak. What happens to their physical body, I'm thinking? And then I thought it, it's got to go somewhere. It escalates unhealthy grief anger suppressed, escalates to unhealthy grief anger, escalates to rage, escalates to violence, escalates to psychopathic behaviors.
0: Yarraka Bales is a proud Gubba Gungala and Wanara Bundjalung woman and a cultural intelligence facilitator at the Black Card, an Aboriginal Australian organisation established by Aboriginal elders and educators Mary Graham and Lilia Watson. Yarika speaks to people all across Australia on a daily basis, educating them on the traumatic history of colonisation for Aboriginal Australians, as well as the ancient civilisation of community and kinship fostered by Aboriginal Australian cultures. Yarika has experienced multiple deaths within her family from a young age, an experience she describes as sadly common in Aboriginal families.
2: I think the first major death in my family that was so close to me was my mum. I was 19 years old, a single mother of two-year-old twin daughters at the time, and it was so unexpected because she was only 45 and she went back to Redfern um, for a bit of a holiday and never came back. So I dealt with it very differently to the way that I've learned to deal with, you know, grief and loss and trauma. And in my older years, my natural um, reaction was to self-medicate and just to fill that huge void that I was feeling. And the anger, you know, like why my mom, like anyone... Just, yeah, I guess I expected to have my mum in my life forever. Um, She was a very staunch, strong... She just seemed invincible.
0: This grief was only compounded by subsequent deaths in her family. Yarika noticed herself imitating her mother's life of substance abuse... And only in recent years came to realise this to be the intergenerational trauma, which is often deeply embedded into the lives of Aboriginal Australians.
2: She never spoke about what happened to her when she was little. My nan never spoke about it. We go back five generations of stolen children on my mum's side and they never once spoke about it. You would never know. Um, you know, they always presented so strong. And now I know why. Looking back on it, everything makes perfect sense trauma is stored in our DNA for at least seven generations. So that really put things into perspective for me. And what I think is most difficult within our communities is there's no translation. So when we talk to people with a language barrier, we never had intergenerational trauma here. So colonization introduced you know, the disconnection of culture, language, ceremony, um, leading to the statistics that we're seeing now.
0: Intergenerational trauma is something Uncle Michael Welsh is also sadly familiar with. The 71-year-old is a member of the Stolen Generations, removed from his family at just 10 years old, alongside his six siblings. According to a 2018-19 report from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, there were an estimated 27,200 surviving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people aged 50 and over who had been removed from their families and communities, representing one in five of the total Indigenous Australian population from this age category. The federal government's 1997 Bringing Them Home report describes grief and loss as the predominant themes of their inquiry into the Stolen Generations. Uncle Michael speaks warmly of life before he was taken away to Kinchella Aboriginal Boys' Home in the New South Wales Mid North Coast, an institution run by the state government with the intention of forcibly assimilating Aboriginal boys into non Indigenous Australian society.
3: We danced around the campfire of a night. This is what the beautiful life was like. Bob played the violin, Mum played the piano accordion we danced around the campfire at night time while they talked about the stars and they talked about, they always had little sticks in there and there was always drawing, you know, in the ground. And they'd they chuck something in the fire. I think it was little sticks in the fire. And the sparks and the flash it would flash up and you'd see them trickling up. And they'd talk about the sparks. They'd talk about the flames and the colours. The, the flames would change colours. So that was a world that was such a perfect world, and then school, we did school, and then they took us.
0: Uncle Michael and his siblings embarked on a 13-hour train ride from Cunamble in central western New South Wales to the mid-north coast on the stolen land of the Dunguddy.
3: We got put us on the train, and uh, I can still see mum and the uncle standing there and waving to us with the little handkerchief that they had. And Central Station became a very important part in our lives because that was where we were separated from there. Um, yeah. my brother Barry and myself, we were told we were going to go on a, another train. And that's and my Brother Barry asked about the other brother and sisters, they said, they're going to come on the next train. You should be right, don't worry about that. So there's nothing we could do about that. So that was the last place that we knew our family Family lovers, you know. That was broken there, right, on the split up there.
0: Uncle Michael says he was subject to horrific sexual, physical and emotional abuse in the institution. But the boys were also stripped of their identity in every sense.
3: I was Michael when I went into the homes. When we passed through the gates of L L that we call it so we were given numbers my my brother and myself he was number 17 and I was given number 36 everything that we had in war had those brands on it if we got caught using each other's names we got punished we weren't allowed to talk we had no choice to make a decision and and I, I know now at my life now that all of these things that they programmed us to do, they programmed us to be slaves for the colonised world.
0: When Michael was finally allowed to leave the home at 18 years old, he was caught between two worlds, feeling like he belonged to neither. He turned to alcohol and violence as a response to this all-consuming grief and trauma.
3: When I got old enough to go into the pub and drink, that was where I headed up headed because um I didn't I didn't fit in to where they're talking. I was no longer part of my own community. I finished up in and out of the jail system like a yaya, you know, and uh, fighting. I often show it, I got teeth marks all across my knuckles, you know. And uh I didn't look after myself at all in that sense. I didn't know. I was reenacting what these people in that home's done to us. They, they 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 taught us how to fight. They taught us how to knock people down, and told us we were never allowed to ask questions or do anything. So that was that was coming out of me.
0: Connection to community and country is vital in breaking the cycle of intergenerational trauma and grief. Yaraka says she's passionate about raising awareness around intergenerational trauma as a vital step in breaking the grief cycle, including in her own family. She believes the higher rates of trauma, substance abuse and incarceration for Aboriginal Australians today are as a result of undiagnosed or misdiagnosed intergenerational trauma. Yaraka says leaning into culture and country proved to be a more empowering way to navigate grief and trauma when her dad died in 2016.
2: Travelling to different parts of the country and seeing how we've got a real strength-based approach around the way that we deal with what we call with sorry business. It's not just, you know, attending a funeral, it's the whole process of, you know, before, during, and or after the passing of someone. But we give grief a place you know, and we call that sorry business, it's ceremony, it's sacred time for family to come together, um, to sit, laugh, cry, share memories, but also remember that we have a deep respect and understanding for the afterlife. So my grandmother always used to remind us the living belong with the living, the dead belong with the dead. And it's because of that strength-based approach, we come together, we support each other because when one, you know, member of our community passes, we all feel it.
0: This connection became central to Michael's healing when he finally decided to speak 50 years after this trauma. Michael was prompted to delve into his own grief through the fear of witnessing his children experience the same trauma with his eldest son being taken away from him at birth.
3: The pain never goes away. We wake it up each time when we do these type of talks but uh, I understand above everything else that if we don't talk about it, it slowly kills us from the inside. I'm identifying this trauma that is growing just from me. My concern is now is the next generation are the ones who are going to suffer. Whenever they take children away from families, families become broken, communities become broken. So, it isn't possible to heal communities, but it is possible to rebuild family structure. Happy family makes happy communities. We tell their stories and we talk about stuff now that's happened to us in the past. They are the knowledge holders of the future.
0: As a member of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group, Michael's healing most often takes place among other men who experienced the trauma of being taken away from their families. He refers to this as collective healing.
3: We are a community of our own, right? And this is what we, we understand now as we come together. Collective healing is that sense that when we get together, we trust each other. And trust is probably the most powerful thing that is the magical word with us and because of where we were, it's very difficult for us to trust anybody because of what happened to us. But so when, when, we, when we give our trust, it's so precious and but if it gets broken, well then it doesn't go back.
0: This vulnerability is something Yarika encourages on a daily basis, both in her work and personal life
2: think there's a real beauty when we're able to be vulnerable and, and share our stories um, and that's a huge feature of our culture so I just yeah would like people to um, you know lean into that strength based approach of our culture whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous there's beautiful ways and different ways of knowing being and doing and when we can take into perspective all of those other different perspectives I think it's just it can have a, an amazing um, profound impact on people so-
0: In our next episode, we will be turning towards other forms of grief beyond death, some of which are unrecognised or unspoken about in our broader society. Katrina Stewart, SBS News.